Hi, Katie. Welcome, everyone, to Have You Ever Heard Of, a history podcast. Where we talk about stuff from history you may or may not have have heard of. There you go. (laughs) Sometimes he gets it right. Not very often. How are you? Uh, Yeah, not too shabby. How about you? I am fine. That's it. (laughs) End. Done. Um, I don't know. I've been... um, I don't know what I've been doing. Uh, I, I kind of stopped watching Wimbledon. The problem with Wimbledon is it's always interesting at the beginning when you have like wild cards and like underdogs. It's very exciting. And then it just turns into like the same old faces and then it just gets really boring. Yeah, so it's a bit like X Factor. Like it's good when they have the auditions, but after the auditions, it's yeah, rubbish. It just settles yeah. into just blandness. The live shows are. Though football's happening still, right? I actually did watch the Denmark game. Um, I watched the Denmark game in a in an actual crowded pub. Did you? Like out, outside, there were so many people there. That's I was exciting. absolutely drenched in beer. Excellent. Covered in it because everyone was just like throwing it around. <laughs> when Kane got that second shot, I don't think I've ever been so hype in my entire life. Like <laughs> just climbing on tables, like people singing all the songs. Uh, you know the the atomic kitten one. It's like Southgate, you're the one. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually get excited for a very split second, like very understated. But I went, oh yes, that was <laughs> oh, it. Okay. oh okay, yes, that was <laughs> it. That's the, that's the most I can muster for football. But... Well, I'm I'm pleased. I'm pleased. <laughs> so yeah, final on Sunday. So by the time you are all listening to this, final will be over. Do you think it's coming home, Dan? Uh, you know what? I'm gonna be I'm gonna be optimistic and positive. Yes, I believe it is. Well, I, I'm not so sure. Oh, okay, so then. I'm glad you are. <laughs> it's an incredible team. Yeah. Absolutely. So let's see how. Obviously, I want it to come home, but let's 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 see. And Southgate is a national treasure. Yeah, obviously, sir. sir. Yeah, sir. Oh, I think so. Queenie, you listening? What happens? <laughs> <clears throat> Queenie, you're listening. They've actually changed. I don't know um, if you've seen it. I live, I don't live, but my parents live quite near the Southgate Underground Tube and they've changed it to Gareth Southgate on the signs. Nice. Yeah. Deserved. <laughs> <laughs> Football's coming home again. Did you see that Atomic Kitten got back together for to sing that song? Really? I didn't like, see that. Yeah, on the, the Peter Crouch's show. I'm going to have to the look is. that clip up, I think. It was most excellent. <laughs> should we talk about history? We should. Okay, then. So I'm going back to the original uh, remit. So I'm talking about a person. And mm-hmm. I picked a person because, um, well, the anniversary for the thing they are most famous for is coming up. So I'm doing uh, Klaus von Stauffenberg. I don't know who that is. Or do I know who that is? You, sh- you all know it. So it's the uh, the, the leader of uh, what was known as Operation Valkyrie. Oh, I know Operation Valkyrie. Yeah. Okay. The yeah. the uh, attempt to assassinate Hitler mm-hmm. during the 20th of July plot. I should know that name. This is my... It's your area. Area, <clears throat> really. I think one of the reasons that I don't know his name is that I've never actually read up on the plot. I yeah. know of it, but I've never done like a paper on it or read about it, really, because my remit was always like terror. Yeah. 
in Nazism and the Holocaust. It wasn't so much like opposition. Yeah, so yeah. it's going to be really interesting for me. Yeah, it's an interesting story actually. There's like um, there's like a, a second kind of like less well known plan that existed beforehand, which yeah, I didn't know about. So that was cool to like learn about. But yeah, so this this episode should be coming out exactly one week before the anniversary. So nice. So it should be cool. Right. So let's get started. So uh, so Klaus. Uh, von Staffenberg was born on the 15th of November 1907 in Castle Yettingen. Yettingen? Yettingen. <laughs> Sounds right. Yettingen. <laughs> Castle Yettingen uh, between Ulm and um, Augsburg uh, in the eastern part of Swabia. So it was the third. That was their castle, by the way, because they are full on aristocratic. Nice. Love a castle. <laughs> a huge, full on actual medieval castle. So he was the third of four sons. So this included um, twins, Berthold and Alexander, and his own twin brother, Conrad Maria. Unfortunately, Conrad would die just one day after his birth, so he never got to live oh, with his, uh, his twin, unfortunately. So um, Klaus actually wasn't given the name von Stauffenberg. Rather, that's his aristocratic name or his title. So his christened name was Klaus Philip Maria Justinian. That's quite a mouthful. Yep. <laughs> so von Stauffenberg essentially translates to of Stauffenberg or like Count, yeah, yeah. Count of Stauffenberg. <clears throat> so the Stauffenberg family is one of the uh, oldest and most distinguished aristocratic Catholic families in uh, southern Germany. And they are cool. still going. <laughs> still going today. Um, oh, hey guys. <laughs> Welcome. So as a young man, Stauffenberg grew up under the influence of Catholicism, though his family family were non-practicing. So he had a liberal education at the 250-year-old Eberhard Ludwig Grammar School in Stuttgart. Um, he is said to have been literarily inclined and became attracted to the ideas of poet Stefan George. Uh, then held an... Ex- uh, to quote uh, Historonica, I've forgotten to write down who said this, but no mind. Then held an extraordinary esteem by an impressionable circle of young admirers, strangely captivated by his vague neoconservative cultural mysticism, which looked away from the sterilities of bourgeois existence towards a new elite of aristocratic aestheticism, godliness and manliness. So manly. Uh, <laughs> so manly. <laughs> so basically I'm just like picturing like very Putin-esque kind of like outlook. Walking like around. when he's like shirtless, yeah, exactly. And riding Just a horse, like riding a horse, doing a bit of judo, <laughs> judo throw COVID virus, that sort of stuff. <laughs> so interestingly, Stefan George was considered a massive influence by the Nazis, who used a lot of his concepts, such as the Thousand Year Reich and the Fire of the Blood. However, George would become to test the racial theories, especially the notion of the Nordic Superman that the uh, the Nazis pushed. And after the assumption of power by the Nazis in 1933, Joseph Goebbels offered him the presidency of a new Academy of the Arts, which he refused. After this, he ended up living in exile in Switzerland until his death. So he was, despite kind of like overlaps in his kind of like crazy neoconservative outlook and that of the Nazis. Yeah, he, he fled the Nazis. So Klaus was a devout Christian, so he found inspiration in the writings of the medieval theologian Thomas uh, Aquinas. Uh, he was also quite the looker, apparently, being tall and very handsome, though he said to be prone to illness and was not very physically strong. 
Uh, maybe that's why his twin died, I guess. Maybe, yeah. Uh, so despite his literary inclinations, he decided on a career in the army, which surprised many. Uh, in 1926, he joined the family's traditional regiment of the 17th Cavalry uh, Regiment. As an officer in Bamberg, his regiment eventually became part of the 1st uh, Light Division under General Eric uh, Hopner. So that's kind of like, kind of a Panzer Division, but not a full Panzer Division, basically. Like a mechanised Light Tank Division. Uh, so initially, Klaus was impressed with Hitler, like almost all other members of the officer corps and aristocrats. Yeah. So the officers, um, as you know, were not fans of the old Weimar, too liberal for their conservative bones. Um, a friend of Stauffenberg said of Klaus that after Hitler gained power, he was delighted that the people rose up against the chains of the Versailles Treaty. The misery of unemployment was eliminated through the creation of work and other measures providing social relief for the working population were initiated. So kind of like that old chestnut, people... So like he was part just part of the general like aristocratic class that were happy about the changes that like Hitler was making in society. Um, another friend of Stauffenberg thought Hitler, <clears throat> despite all the low qualities in his nature, had expressed fundamental and genuine longings for a revival. I mean, you got to get that snobbery in there, right? <laughs> Even when you're spoiling a psychopath, if you're an aristocrat, got to get it in there. Uh, so on the 26th of September 1933, Stauffenberg married Nina von Lurchenfield. Um, together they had five children. Uh, so she is one of the main sources of what we know about Klaus. So according to her, his hostility towards Hitler grew gradually. So he facilitated between strong dislike of Hitler's policies and respect for what he perceived to be Hitler's uh, political and military acumen. Uh, so Stauffenberg became more, even more... Um, dissociated with the party after the night of the Long Knives, apparently, and Kristallnacht proves that Hitler had no intention of to uh, pursue justice. I mean, like, I don't know why anyone thought he did want to pursue justice. I think it was pretty obvious from the outset that that wasn't exactly his intention. I mean, it's one of the, you know, fundamental questions. Mm. It's like, how did the Nazis come to power? And, you know, I wrote an essay on this, and part of that was terror, part of that was a lot of different elections happening in very quick succession so like building up support a lot of that was you know people were hungry and didn't have jobs yeah. and they wanted anything to cling to and and a part of that was our fault because of the tree of our side yeah i guess that's kind of like the aspect of justice that he uh he's probably uh emphasizing just i think so thing. like he just kept continually broke the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah. The thing is, he managed to bring people jobs by breaking the Treaty of Versailles yeah. because the jobs he was bringing were uh, gearing towards war. So uh, people were getting jobs and they were being fed, but so, know, so I mean, illegally. like the Knights of Long Knights and Kristallnacht are like internal um, events. That's true. So I mean, like, so that must be like him thinking like actual law and order in the country. I suppose there was kind of like lawlessness, like under the Weimar. But that was like lawlessness, like like lawlessness, like like uh, majorly like perpetrated by far right parties like Hitler's, along yes. with the communists. But like uh, just fighting each other. So I mean, yeah, like he was like one of the, yeah one of the uh, perpetrators of this. So it's kind of strange, a strange uh, 
Yeah, positions I love, like these aristocrats take. Anyway, moving on. Anyway, moving on. Um, so in regards to like his anti-Semitism, the historical historiography is mixed. So to- according to historian Anton Gill, the uh, the author of An Honorable Defeat, a history of German resistance to Hitler. Um, Stauffen- he said Stauffenberg's character seems to have been completely free of any racism whatsoever. I mean, I think that is just an idealized version of like um, of him, really. Others have said that he largely agreed with Hitler's racist policies, but rather just thought they went too far. I mean, considering like the time, I reckon that's probably where he was. Yeah. Um. Yeah, it's always like an interesting subject. Do actions or attempted actions in this case make up for detestable character flaws? Do we take into account like context? I mean. At the moment, no, I don't think. But in more sensible times, this would be an interesting debate. More sensible times. <laughs> uh, it's obviously, yeah. It, I mean, like, obviously it's going to be like a little from column A and a little from column B. But anyway, whatever's moving on. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, but yeah. So generally historians do agree that he detested the growing and uh, systematic ill treatment of Jews, um, which offended Stauffenberg's strong sense of Catholic morality and justice. So... So yeah, so he didn't like the the violence, even though he might have held kind of detestable views himself. Um, so as a result of the Munich Agreement, Stauffenberg's regiment moved into Sudetenland, Sudetenland rather, in 1938. So when Hitler ordered the German army to enter Prague on the 15th of March 1939, Stauffenberg is said to have strongly disapproved, fearing it would result in unnecessary war. He told a friend that the fools... The fool is headed for war. So at this point, he's just like an armchair critic. Uh, yeah, basically, yeah. So he's in the army. He's kind of like enacting like a lot of the stuff because he's part of the regiments so of like, yeah, right, like taking. Part yeah, but he's just sitting in his armchair, being like, yeah, he's just saying it to his friends. Don't really agree with this. Yeah, Which, I mean, like, he's quite dangerous in and of itself. Like, yeah, I suppose it is at this time yeah. for sure. Yeah, but still, like, but yeah, but he's not done anything like uh, over. I mean, even. Th- Thinking it was dangerous at this time. Yeah. <laughs> Dodd police. See uh, alone in Berlin. <laughs> so, uh, so Salvenberg believed that it would take at least 10 years to win the war and an unacceptable cost in lives. I mean, like, <laughs> watch this space, mate. <laughs> um, he did, however, agree with the conquering and colonization of the Poles. Some even say he agreed with the use of Poles as slave labor to achieve German prosperity. So, I mean, like, see, there's just what a, guy. a lot of stuff in here that is very <laughs> fucking questionable. Um, <clears throat> so he had, like, this deeply rooted belief, which was common in the German aristocracy at the time, that the Eastern territories populated predominantly by the Poles um, kind of just, like, by right belong to Germany. I mean, like they had once been part of Prussia uh, and should be colonised as the Teutonic Knights have done in the Middle Ages. So, I mean, like, he's hardly like an enlightened individual. No, he's twat. <laughs> um, one source has him saying, it is essential that we begin the systematic colonisation colonization in Poland, but I have no fear that this will not occur. Say, so, I mean, yeah. Um, <laughs> so despite his view, this view, he became concerned about the way Poles were treated or murdered during the occupation. So around this time, he started to associate with the uh, 
Kreisau circles, which included his cousin, Peter von uh, Wurstenberg, and his uncle, Nicholas Graf von Oxkull Gil- uh, Gillenband, <laughs> uh, who, who urged him to join the resistance against Hitler. Uh, so he's basically his family were very deep in the resistance. Okay. Also included his brothers, um, who, yeah, meet quite a harsh fate, but we'll get into that later. Um, so despite his sympathy for the resistance and growing dislike of Hitler, he refused to dedicate himself to the resistance at this point, though he was in contact with them. So in 1940, he fought with the 6th Panzer Division when it invaded France in May 1940, winning the Iron uh, Cross First Class for his efforts. So he was like a frontline commander, uh, took part in like dangerous action, like a good soldier. So Stauffenberg then took part in Operation Barbarossa. So in this role, he witnessed firsthand the countless atrocities committed by the SS. According to his friend, Major Joachim Kuhn, uh, Stauffenberg told him in August 1942 that they are shooting Jews in masses. These crimes must not be allowed to continue. He commented openly on the ill treatment of the Jews during the summer of 1942, uh, which was a dangerous thing to do, no doubt. But he's like openly kind of criticizing all of this to um, to high command staff now. Uh, up until this point, Stauffenberg had not engaged in any coup planning. So this changed after his experiences in Russia, as Joe thought of uh, plotting Hitler's death rise. It was at this time Stauffenberg resolved to do anything in his power to remove Hitler and overthrow the regime. So it took like two years, basically, for him to. Commit, yeah. commit to this. But th- before things could progress too much further, Klaus was promoted to the rank of Lieutenant Colonel and sent to Africa to join the 10th Panzer Division in its ah. operations. So here, tragedy would befall him. Stauffenberg was a very hands-on commander would drive from one unit to the other to direct their movement rather than just radioing them from like a, an HQ. So on the 7th of April 1943, his vehicle was part of a column strafed by a P-40 Kitty Hawk fighter bomber. So he received multiple severe wounds, taking damage to the hands, knee and face. So Stauffenberg lost his left eye, his right hand and two fingers on his left hand. Oh, gosh, that's only three fingers left. Yeah, that's it. That's all the digits he has now. He can only... What can you do with three fingers? He... He can only, like, I don't know pinch things yeah you can still click i mean he's like (laughs) like a cartoon character no simpsons are four don't they yeah doesn't even have simpsons fingers oh what harsh Harsh. he took it well though he joked to his friends that he never really knew what to do with so many fingers when he still had all of them i mean keeping that play the piano um you know Type on a keyboard. Yeah, right. I mean, I think he's probably right-handed. So yeah, chop pepper and and, and, and two hands. do the things that he needs to do to wash to, to assassinate Hitler, as we will come to find. <laughs> <laughs> um, so for his injuries, uh, Stauffenberg was awarded the wound badge in gold and spent three months in hospital. So upon leaving hospital, he started taking part in the resistance act- activities in earnest. So, so do you think about- that this um, experience with his injury like, pushed him forward a bit? Definitely. I think there was a little yeah. bit of bitterness there, even though he does seem to be quite jovial about it. Um, mm. So in September 1943, he was propositioned by his fellow conspirators with a plan, Operation Valkyrie. So as part of this, 
He was transferred to the headquarters of the Ersatz here, or the replacement army. So this organization is basically charged with training soldiers to reinforce the first line divisions of the front. So and is located in Berlin. So interestingly, Operation Valkyrie had been had received the uh, blessing of Hitler. The operation Wait, that was what? taken down had received. <laughs> Hang on. That took a second to sink in. <laughs> That's because it basically was kind of a slightly different operation in in Hitler's eyes. So, so basically it was a contingency measure to let uh, the replacement army assume control over the Reich in event that the inter- that internal disturbances blocked communications to the military high command. So if there was kind of like... I think it's because Hitler was like quite paranoid... As you know, <laughs> yeah. And it was the so there was kind of like a, a belief that maybe like factions of the SS might try and like take him out and take control of the country in place of it was sort of like a Himmler or uh, someone else by trying to like take control control yeah. from him, or like or it might be just like some other attack, like an Allied attack or something. But it was just like a way of having the Wehrmacht, which was supposed to be loyal to Hitler rather than Germany, and. Um, to take the country but the way the these commanders saw it was that it was really a plan to be used against hitler and the whole nazi hierarchy so a detailed military plan was developed by stauffenberg and the others not only to occupy berlin but to take the different headquarters of the german armies and hitler's bunker in east prussia as well by military force all they needed was hitler out of the way so, the original assassination was supposed to take place in November 1943, so like way earlier, yeah. at the Wolfslayer in East Prussia, and was to be undertaken by a young officer named Axel von den Buscher. <laughs> that is a good <clears throat> That's name. a good name. That's a strong yeah. German name. <laughs> so, in 1942, Buscher had witnessed by chance an SS-organized massacre of more than 3,000 Jewish civilians at the old... Dubno Airport. So this experience traumatised him for life and turned him sidely against Hitler. After this experience, he declared that there there were only three ways left to preserve his honour as an officer. To die in battle, to desert, or to rebel against the government that had ordered this and other massacres. He chose option three. Good man. So he justified his intention to kill Hitler by his legal right to defend others against unlawful, ongoing criminal attacks. And so, encouraged by Stauffenberg, Buscher agreed to undertake a suicide bombing to kill Hitler. So he was going to, like, give himself up for this, unlike Stauffenberg. Stauffenberg doesn't do that, as we'll find out. But this guy was going to blow himself. So Hitler, basically, was due to inspect new army winter uniforms at the Wolfslayer. So basically, this was going to be the weirdest, darkest catwalk exercise ever. <laughs> Just getting some Nazi soldiers to strut their stuff. <laughs> so Busher was over two meters tall, blonde, blue-eyed, to basically like exemplified the looks look of like Hitler's Nordic Superman, making him yeah. an ideal model for the uniforms. Yeah. So the plan saw Busher equip a landmine with a fast-reacting hand grenade detonator, which he to hide in the deeper pockets of his uniform trousers. He then detonated the bomb while embracing Hitler, thus killing them both. 
I mean, like in the words of Rich and Prince George, Blackadder, what a pair of trousers. What a pair of trousers. <laughs> Unfortunately, we managed to fuck up this plan. <laughs> uh, the viewing was scheduled for the 16th of November 1943 however the night before the railway truck containing all the new air- uniforms was destroyed by an allied air raid in Berlin oh well done well done guys Jesus like, Christ just uniforms <laughs> pick oh. a better target guys um, so uh, on the 18th Bushir returned to his unit on the eastern front where he was wounded and lost one of his legs game over it's really difficult oh. to like walk the catwalk, catwalk with one leg. Like it's just hop. It's not the same exactly. It's not the same. Just hopping. Yeah, I mean nowadays I'm sure they do have models mm. with prosthetic limbs, but oh, yeah, in the 1940s, but not, probably not. Not in front of Hitler. <laughs> <laughs> That's not gonna really work, really work. That that doesn't really fit with his Nazi outlook. Um, and so the act then fell to Stauffenberg himself. So, um, ba ba ba. So from the beginning of September 1943 until the plot um, itself, Stauffenberg was basically like the driving force behind the plot to uh, assassinate Hitler and take control of Germany. So it was kind of like his resolve, his organisational abilities, his radical approach uh, that, that kind of like put an end to the inactivity and doubts and long discussions that kind of like plagued the the uh the conspiracy up to this point so he managed to unite everyone and kind of drove them into action um he was also well aware that under german law he was committing high treason so he openly told busher in late 1943 that i am committing high treason with all means at my disposal that line is like in the film operation valkyrie tom cruise plays stauffenberg strange pick what Weird. Yeah, weird pick. I mean, like, I guess he kind of like. Looks they couldn't find an actual similar. German yeah. like, actor. There's Does, so many of them. Doesn't even bother with them, like trying to put in an accent. It's just Tom what? Cruise speaking like Tom, Tom Cruise. Tom. <laughs> this is one of the reasons. Like, you can't just pay every part. Like, yeah. pick your part. Like, oh. oh. Anyway. I think he might have like produced it. I think that's how he got the place. I think he just made the film one, and now I'm gonna be him. It's like, all right, Tom, fair enough. <laughs> sure, Tom. Take whatever part you want. <laughs> Play be Hitler, whatever. Um. So next on the list to kill Hitler had been General Helmut Steif. No, Steve. Steve. Helmut Steve. Uh, but he got cold feet. He can do it. After this, Stauffenberg decided to take the task on himself. So this wasn't ideal, so Stauffenberg was needed at the headquarters to get the rest of the plan into action. Calling up the various units, wanting support from the other officers, etc. That was the part he was meant to play, but now he also had to blow him up. I don't know what the other guys were doing. It's just like, can one of one of you just like... Blow him the, up. Just like take the radio or something. Like, no, no, you have to do it all, mate. Every bit, yourself. Okay, then... Um, so I mean like by this point Stavmov just basically doubted the plan was going to succeed he, I mean he was pretty sure it wasn't going to succeed it's so fine well but his friend um, General Tresco convinced him to go on with it even if it had no chance of success at all saying basically like the assassination must be attempted even if it fails we must take action in Berlin as this was the only way to prove to the world that Hitler's uh, regime and Germany were not one and the same, and then all Germans supported the regime. 
So together they started planning for an alternative government, even though they kind of knew it was going to work. They just like, it's like fantasy football, isn't it? A fantasy government that's never going to come in space. But anyway, so this group included <laughs> yeah, it's civilians. just like fantasy football. <laughs> so this group included civilians, even social democrats like Julius Lieber. Interestingly, Stauffenberg was closest to the socialists in the group, like Lieber, despite being an aristocrat. And he was highly critical of the conservatives led by Kyle... Uh, Gordleder, Gord, Gordela, Gordela, we'll go with that. Gordela. <laughs> um, Gordela said he wanted to steer a dubious political course with left-wing socialists and the communists, and gave me a bad time with his overwhelming egotism. Um, yeah, so it's kind of strange. Like he was on that side of the uh, of, huh. the, of the of the of the fantasy government. Um. <laughs> But yeah, I wish that was an actual app, like the FPL <laughs> app, except like with politicians. It's just like, what would your fa- and then like you get points every time they, I don't know, like move into a new role. Or something. <laughs> I don't know how it would work. Somebody create that app for me. Someone thanks. design that. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it's kind of like typical of that uh, of history, really. The uh, the loathing of liberalism and bourgeois bohemianism represented by the Viet Vimeer. Um, but that could still translate to an affection for socialism or communism. But I mean, like, I guess you see that sometimes, like, um, like social kind of like socially like conservative um, aspects of of kind of like socialist movements and co- uh, communist movements. I mean, like, the Soviet Union was hardly like liberal, <laughs> which I think people <laughs> seem to forget. Anyway. <clears throat> Uh, so let's move on to the assassination attempt itself. So, like with Bush, Stauffenberg decided to kill Hitler with a bomb. So the plan was to um, plant an explosive during one of Hitler's briefings, which Stauffenberg would be invited to as a senior staff officer at the replacement army. So that's his. That's his in. That's his invitation. Yep. So Stauffenberg attended his first meeting with Hitler on the sixth of July, and he had the bomb with him but he didn't plant it. It's believed that the plan had originally called for Himmler and Goering to be present. So for this reason, the the date of the attack was pushed back twice. So basically, like, Himmler and Goering rarely attended briefings with Hitler. They would just kind of, like, send their lackeys instead who would, like, brief them later on. Too big for the meetings. We all know that. We've all worked in companies where, like, the other, other managers don't turn up to meetings. Too busy to turn up to the meeting. Too busy. I'm busy like, too, mate. But sending I'm motivational emails. <laughs> yeah, I actually uh, have, have work had, to do. Have you had those managers who like spend only oh, just yeah. send motivational emails, and you're like, I know how much you get yeah. paid <laughs> to just sit in your office and not go to not meetings. go to meetings. <laughs> So no one's his way around any longer. Stauffenberg decided to do the deed on the 15th of July in 1944. However, he didn't because he had problems fusing his bomb. This is where his three fingers come in. So since he only had those three fingers, he had to use a pair of pliers um, mm. to kind of fuse this. And I, and certainly this would have been seen. It has been plain that if he bent down to his briefcase and begun to open it with his three fingers... Someone certainly would have come to assistance, lifted it onto the table, helped him take out his papers, and, I mean, revealed the big bomb. 
There's a massive bomb in it. Here's your papers. Oh, there seems to be a big bomb in your... <laughs> what is this, like, ticking device? <laughs> so basically he decided he needed help. In steps his adjutant, Werner von Haften. Haften? Haften or Haften? Haften, probably, depending Hafton. on if there's an umlaut. Uh, an umlaut, but I don't know if it's just not there because of... Your shit notes. Yeah, my shit notes, exactly. <laughs> my questionable notes. So on the 20th of July, so with him on board, on the 20th of July, 1944, Stauffenberg and Haften left Berlin to move Hitler the walls there once again. After a two-hour flight from Berlin, they landed at Rustenburg at 10.15 in the morning. Stauffenberg had, had first had a briefing with Field Marshal Wilhelm Keitel, that little puppet, Chief of the Armed, <laughs> Arms, uh, Arms, uh, Chief of the Armed Forces High Command at 11.30. As soon as that meeting was over, Stauffenberg met up with Hafton, who was carrying the two bombs in his briefcase. Together they went to the toilet to set the time fuses, but they only had time to prepare the one bomb when they were interrupted by a junior officer who told them that the 12.30 meeting with Hitler was about to start. It was then that Stauffenberg made the fatal decision to place one of the bombs in his briefcase and give the other one back to Hafton. Had the second device, even without the charge being set, been placed in Stauffenberg's bag with the, uh, with the other one, it would have been enough. Definitely. Like, most certainly... To have wiped out, like, everyone in that room. Yeah, that's a rookie mistake. Well, it's not even a rookie, that's the thing. I know. He's like an officer, he should know yeah. these things. I mean, like... Ugh, just... <laughs> Maybe he didn't have enough room in his briefcase? Maybe. Yeah, I guess it wasn't, like... But why don't he just... Mm... Maybe. Take, just, like, take... He should just take, take out your tie. bag in instead. Maybe it was like, maybe it wasn't a briefcase. Maybe that was just like his like traveling bag. And they'd be like, why have you got your traveling bag in here? <laughs> I don't know. So, when Stauffenberg entered the wooden briefing hut, 24 senior officers were assembled around a huge map table placed on two heavy oak supports. Stauffenberg had to push his way forward to get near enough to the table. He then had to place the briefcase so it was not in anyone's way, but kind of like in the right position to take out Hitler. So he placed the bomb at the right-hand corner of the table, which was not the most optimum position. I don't know why he put it there. After a few minutes, Stauffenberg excused himself, saying that he had to take a telephone call from Berlin. So there was continual coming and going during the briefing conferences, so this didn't raise any suspicions. Stauffenberg and Hafton then went straight to the building about 200 yards away, consisting of bunkers and reinforced huts. So they wanted to be safe from this explosion. Shortly afterwards, eyewitnesses uh, recalled a deafening crack shattered the midday quiet and a bluish-yellow flame rocketed skywards. A dark plume of smoke rose and hung in the air over the wreckage of the briefing barracks. Shards of glass, wood and fibreboards swirled about and the scorched pieces of paper and insulation rained down. Stauffenberg and Hafton observed a body covered with Hitler's cloak being carried out of the briefing hut on a stretcher and assumed he'd been killed. They got into a car, but luckily the alarm had not yet been given when they reached, the gar- the- when they reached guard post one. The lieutenant in charge 
who had heard the blast, stopped the car and asked to see their papers. Stauffenberg, like the perfect Prussian aristocratic officer that he was, demanded that he must go to the airfield at once and ordered the soldiers to open the gate. After a short pause, the lieutenant let them go. According to eyewitness testimony and the subsequent investigation by the Gestapo, Stauffenberg's briefcase containing the bomb had been moved further under the conference table in the last seconds before the explosion in order to provide additional room for the participants around the table. So consequently, the table acted as a partial shield protecting Hitler from the full force of the blast, sparing him serious injury or death. So he just basically... It basically just injured his arm. That was yeah, it. he got a bit of a bit of a graze on the yeah, arm and that, that was, was it. it. So not knowing that Hitler was still alive, Stauffenberg raced to Berlin to enact the second part of the plan. So basically, the officers went putting together Operation Valkyrie. He had failed to consider the possibility that Hitler might inv- survive whatever attack they kind of like perpetrated against him. So then between them, the officers decided it would it would be best just to wait and do nothing. Basically just behave routinely, follow their everyday habits. So in other words... The officers decided it would be best just to wuss out. Yep. Stauffenberg arrived back in Berlin and went straight to see General Friedrich, uh, Friedrich Fromm. So Stauffenberg insisted that Hitler was dead. Fromm replied that he'd just learned from Field Marshal Keitel, that little puppet, that Hitler had survived the bomb attack. Stauffenberg replied, Field Marshal Keitel is lying as usual. I myself saw Hitler being carried out dead. He then admitted... So, like, basically, Fromm didn't know this yet. But he then admitted that he had planted the bomb himself. Fromm became very angry and declared that all conspirators were now under arrest. However, Stauffenberg retorted that, on the contrary, it is us who are now in control and you who are under arrest. So, shortly after the assassination attempts, Joseph Goebbels had broadcast over German radio assuring the public that Hitler was alive and well and they would speak to the nation later that evening, saying today an attempt was made on the Fuhrer's life with explosives. The Fuhrer himself suffered no injuries beyond light burns and bruises. He resumed work immediately. So this kind of like shows how badly organised this coup was. Stauffenberg was supposed to direct the army and the guards who was supposed to have been placed outside Gilbert's door before he could make the broadcast. Although fully equipped soldiers um, did kind of like secure the roads and it's like were set up outside like the offices, they came like way too late and they didn't actually stop anyone from like moving. It was like it was very half hearted. No attempt to be made to arrest any of the Nazi leaders or kill them, uh, nor did they secure immediate control of the radio and telephone communication system. So this was surprising. As weeks earlier, the original plan had included the seizure of long distance telephone, the, the long distance telephone office, the main telegraph office, the radio broadcasting facilities in and around Berlin, and the central post office. So this had all been accounted for, but none of it had um, taken place. Um, but, but, but. Later that day, Goebbels told Heinrich Himmler. If they hadn't been so clumsy, they had an enormous chance. What dolts, what childishness. When I think now how I would have handled such a thing, why didn't they occupy the radio station, spread the wildest lies? Here they put guards in front of my door, but they let me go right ahead and telephone the Fuhrer, mobilise everything. They didn't even silence my telephone to hold so many trumps and botch it, what beginners. (laughs) I mean, 
They screwed Fair. up. <laughs> so sometime between 8 and 9pm, the cordon that the conspirators had established around the government quarter was lifted. Military units that had initially supported the conspirators were switching loyalties back to the Nazis. By 10pm, forces loyal to the government were able to seize control of the... Uh, of the replacement army officers in central Berlin, overpowering the rebels after a brief shootout during which Stauffenberg was wounded in the shoulder. General Fromm was then released and Stauffenberg and his followers were then taken prisoner. Those arrested included Colonel General Ludwig Beck, Colonel General Eric Hopner, General Frederick Albrecht, Colonel Mertz von... Oh, God... Queerheim and Lieutenant Werner von Haften, say so his adjutant, the guy that helped him with the bomb. Yeah. Fromm decided that he would hold an immediate court martial. So Fromm had essentially been part of the conspiracy, so he wanted to just like cover his ass. Like he hadn't been like one hundred percent known about it and kind of allowed it to happen. Unsurprisingly, they were all found guilty and sentenced to death. Hopner, an old friend, was spared. Uh, to stand further trial later on. Beck requested the right to commit suicide. According to the testimony of Hopner, Beck was given back his own pistol and he shot himself in the temple, but only managed to give himself a slight head wound. That's horrible. Oh, God. In a state of extreme distress, Beck asked for another gun and an attendant officer offered him a Mauser. Like, that's a rifle. I don't know what the fuck is going to do that. And apparently the second shot also failed to kill him. So then a sergeant had to then finish Beck off. And then he was given, apparently, he was given Beck's leather overcoat as a reward. That's really grim. Here you go. Grim. Well done, sergeant. Have his coat. The condemned men were then taken to the courtyard. Drivers of the vehicles parked in the courtyard were instructed to position them so their headlights would illuminate the scene. General Albrecht was shot first. When it came to Stauffenberg's turn next, he shouted, Long live free Germany. When the salvo rang out, though, Halfton had thrown himself in front of Stauffenberg and so was shot first, saving his officer's life for a moment. The next salvo killed Stauffenberg. Stauffenberg died at 1am in the morning on the 21st of July, 1944. He was just 36 years old. That's how old I'm going to be in a couple of weeks. Yay! <laughs> Let's find out what happened to... Uh, to other people that were involved in this. So what are Stauffenberg's family? So Stauffenberg's eldest brother, Bertolt Scheck, Graf von Stauffenberg. I mean, these are aristocratic names. <laughs> so he was tried before Judge President Roland um, Freisler. I guess you know about this guy. In the Special People's Court. The, uh, oh, yeah. Nice. That guy. So this was like that court established by Hitler for political offences. So Bertholdt was one of eight conspiracies executed by slow strangulation. Oh, no. Berlin later that day. So basically, before he was killed, Bertholdt was strangled and then revived multiple times. Yeah. The entire execution and multiple resuscitations were filmed for Hitler to view at his leisure. So leisurely... Leisurely. I mean, like, imagine him with fucking popcorn. That is the sort of fucking sick thing he would do. 
More than 200 were condemned in show trials and executed. Hitler used the 20, uh, 20th of July plot as an excuse to destroy anyone he feared would oppose him. The traditional military salute from that day forward was replaced by the with the Nazi salute. Eventually, over 20,000 Germans were killed or sent to concentration camps in the purge. And there you go. That is Schaufenberg and the attempt to kill Hitler. Oh, yeah. It's not a good yeah. story, is it? No. <laughs> uh, if only it had succeeded. But I mean, like, if it had, I, it's unlikely that the the war would have ended. Like their demands were like ridiculous. They wanted to like carry on fighting the East. They wanted to basically like keep most of the their uh, the, the territory they conquered in the East. They also wanted to like keep bits of France and like make um. Alsace Lorraine, like a like a neutral zone that was like self governing, like there was no way the French would have agreed to that. Like it would have just carried no. on. I mean, this is like nearly D Day anyway. Exactly, yeah. There was exactly like um, the Western Allies had already agreed on unconditional surrender. Yeah, so it was never going to go any other way. But yeah, bad times. Bad times. So what uh, are you doing this weekend? I've got very little plans. I don't know. I was meant to go to like a party, but like I've well, since like uh, we've started coming out of lockdown, like I've had quite crazy weekends, and now I think I need a weekend of not drinking because it's affecting my mental health. But I don't know if like it's drinking then being also locked down, kind of. And yeah, if you try to it's getting to me, I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do this weekend. It basically is the. Sh- this is the short of it. How about you? <laughs> uh, well, my boyfriend's away, so I'm going to go to a friend's house and watch three films. <laughs> Very nice. And Marathon. Yeah, on his massive television. And then I'm going to watch football, probably with my parents. And yeah, I'm nice. going to either celebrate or commiserate it coming or not coming home. <laughs> what three uh, films? We're going to watch Old Boy. Nice, good We're choice. We're going to watch a film called, I think it was called The Possession or something from last year, one of his favorite films last year that I missed. And cool. then those are two like horror films. So then we're going to watch Disney film of my choice. <laughs> nice. We'll Even be though relief to cap it I off. chose horror. <laughs> like, <laughs> I love horror. But um, yeah, I don't know. There's you a couple of it. Disney films I have never seen. I've never seen Brave. I've never seen Cars. I haven't seen Up. I haven't seen Inside Out. Oh, Up's amazing. So I just amazing. feel like it might make me want to die. Yeah, you, exactly. You need that kind of like little sugary snack after a bit of trauma, don't you, to, to mm. help get you through it. <laughs> so I think I might like... I might choose Brave. Brave's cool. I love yeah. Brave. Okay. So, uh, what do we do now? Oh, yeah. So, if you are at a loose end and you have five minutes, why don't you subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already and give us a review? Five stars would be great, but no pressure. Up to you. It's give up us what to you, you think we deserve, you know? And if you do leave a review, we'll give you a shout out on the pod. Oh, yes. And follow us on the social medias. At have you ever part? There you go. Uh, on Instagram and Twitter. Yes, and see you next time. Bye. Bye.